I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, host of MedLife with Dr. Horton on CMAJ Podcasts. I'm a general internist and associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine and director of the Allen Kloss Medical Humanities Program at the Max Rady College of Medicine in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Dr. Kalanithi is a clinical assistant professor of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine. She's the widow of Dr. Paul Kalanithi, author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, When Breath Becomes Air. Dr. Kalanithi, who has special interests in end-of-life care, physician wellness, and caregiving, has appeared at TEDMED, the Aspen Institute, and in the New York Times. I'm in the studio at the University of Manitoba, and Lucy is joining me remotely from Stanford, California. Dr. Kalanithi, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a little bit more about you and your medical practice. Sure. So I'm a general internist, too, and I'm about 10 years into practice. I practice in the outpatient setting, um, and I also did a two-year postdoc research fellowship focused on healthcare delivery and specifically high-value healthcare, Um, so how to provide better health at lower cost. Um, I became really interested during my primary care practice in overutilization, underutilization, thinking about how to value primary care. And so um, that's how I ultimately ended up at Stanford, as I first was a postdoc fellow. And then I joined the faculty as a clinical internist and faculty member here. And you've become an advocate for culture change around end-of-life care. Can you talk a little bit about what the problem is right now as you see it? Sure. Um, And I think anybody who works in medicine or has had an ill family member or been through the the process with someone who's dying um, will have a sense of this, you know. I think um, we're at this funny moment in history where we have intensive care really readily available to us. Um, And I think that's really exciting for many medical conditions and situations like um, really premature baby or massive trauma or intense reversible infection. But I think the thing that we all feel moral distress about is, you know, this sort of cultural idea that Technology should be used in any case or every case and the idea of, quote unquote, do everything possible medically. And I think we have all seen in our practice the suffering that can come from, you know, using that technology, in particular things like dialysis or long-term ventilator um, or feeding tubes, for example, in a patient for whom it's providing a bigger downside than the benefit that comes about. So, I became really interested in that question of, you know, how to manage end-of-life care during my residency first, where I did many weeks and months in our intensive care units and was trying to talk a lot with families about how to choose wisely, how to proceed with a really ill family member. And I think during that time, I actually felt that was when I learned the term moral distress um, and started to feel sort of instinctively that I wasn't sure we were doing the right thing for patients, um, partly because we in some ways lacked the language or cultural permission to be able to face up to mortality and face up to, you know, the limitations of our bodies and the limitations of modern medicine. So um, I know the the people listening to this show maybe have faced that same moral distress. And and so now my life is kind of, I've, I've loved actually 
being engaged in a national, international conversation around um, how we can do this better. And, and some of it has to do with cultural conversation. And, and just a last point on that. So my late husband's memoir, which I know we're going to talk about more, was on the bestseller lists worldwide for more than a year. Um, and it followed in the wake of Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, which is about aging and dying and how those interact with our medical system. And it's just interesting to see a cultural hunger, you know, like that those types of books like that would be bestsellers. And I think that shows that there's a a yearning for this kind of um, reflection. What you make me think of talking about that is how there is so often this gulf between during these acute moments of care, what patients need from us and what we provide. From an educational perspective in medicine, where do you think that gulf arises or how do we begin to address it in medical students and residents? So I guess I have two pieces of an answer to this. Um, one is about conceptualizing what the physician-patient relationship is. And it's interesting to look. Like if you start even pretty recently, but in the 1950s, um, the the usual model for physician-patient relationship was what's called paternalistic. And we all know what that is. It's like you go to the doctor, they make a decision, they tell you what will be done to you. So that's, you know, out of style now. And what came after that is a couple of different things. So a next model that evolved was one in which it was almost like the physician or clinician was providing a menu. Like, here are different options. Here are the risks and benefits of each one. Which one would you like to choose? And then, um, most recently, there's sort of been an evolution into a slightly different kind of relationship, which Atul Gawande writes about. And I really like a, the framing of this history. There's a, a short article by Emmanuel and Emmanuel that talks about these framings. And um, the most recent idea is one that is actually based in values first. And it's almost like, a pastoral role almost where sort of start with, you know, who, what is important to the patient? Who is the patient? Um, what are they trying to accomplish, you know, today or in their lives? And what kinds of things are most meaningful to them? And then the physician in our knowledge and experience can say, you know, here are the options, here are the risks and benefits, and here's the one that I recommend based on who you are. I'd like to try to shape this with you. And um, I think that's a really beautiful way to do it because it's not us telling people what to do and it's not us just throwing a menu and then sitting there. I think that role as a, like, interpreter and guide is, you know, one that makes sense to me. And then I think um, in terms of actual skills, you know, within our education or within continuing medical education, there's a great deal of research and real educational formulations about this. So one that I like is the Serious Illness Conversation Guide, which came out of Ariadne Labs and Harvard Medical School. Um, and it's a set of actual research-tested language and formulation of these questions that include things like, it sort of asks the patient, you know, what's most important to you? What are you the most worried about? 
if time becomes short for you, what will be most important to you? What does a good day look like? It's, it's questions getting at, you know, who are you and what should we take into account um, from your real life as we're making these decisions? And um, I also love the resource uh, Vital Talk, um, which is a series of workshops and online videos. And I think the thing that's so interesting is like, just because we're really nice people and the things, you know, our instincts are really deeply felt um, or we carry a deep well of empathy doesn't mean that we are necessarily good at this from the get-go. I think, you know, in medical schools, these things are kind of sometimes thought of as like soft skills or, you know, like the fuzzy-wuzzy thing on the side. And I think really, I love that Atul Gawande wrote this in Being Mortal. He wrote about how um, a very seasoned clinician carrying out a family meeting for an hour deliberating over these things is sort of highly technical and procedural and guided by experience and research and knowledge in the same way that performing a bedside procedure might be. So I think we now actually have fabulous teaching tools in medical school and beyond. And I think another thing I like about the Serious Illness Conversation Guide is that it's for attending physicians too. It's not um, only for trainees. Same thing with Vital Talk. But I, I myself feel so much more confident after having trainings like that. I feel like I have a way to express and carry out um, what I am hoping to do. What have you found is one of the most effective strategies for making the case that these things need to be regarded as core competencies in educational programs? You know, it is useful to have really substantial research that backs up the fact that, you know, skillful communication and decision making with a patient using resources or skills like the ones we've talked about has direct impact on quality of care and in some cases on costs, on the value of care. So um, it's always useful to be able to make a moral case and a business case when you're trying to make the case for anything. And I think this is one of those instances in which the emerging research um, provides really solid backing. And so um, that's a language we all speak to. I think if I, if I had to make the case for this, I would walk into a meeting I would bring research with me, and it's it's there. And you kind of make me think of the pivot of, you know, the literature on burnout and the increasing strategies that so many of us are using, putting forth the data showing that burnt-out physicians make more mistakes and, and the corollary physicians who are perceived as more empathetic have not only better patient satisfaction but better outcomes. So it's kind of analogous to that, I guess. Exactly, and I think in both of these instances, burnout and education around communication, it is the future and you can see it. So it's nice also to be able to point to sister organizations and say, you know, the Mayo Clinic has been doing this immensely transformative thing about burnout. And now Stanford Medicine is too. And Harvard's leading the way on these communication strategies. And so is University of Washington. And it's a snowball. And we can all take heart in the fact that this is the future. We get a lot of physician authors who write narrative essays for the CMAJ, and they write about struggles coping with the death of patients. And actually, we also, at the Dear Dr. Horton column, which is a, a partner with this feature, we also get letters from students and residents expressing the same thing, that they're struggling to cope with patient deaths. And I'm wondering how your life experience has affected the way in which you experience the death of your own patients as a clinician? 
Mm, yeah. So for what it's worth, my current practice is in outpatient medicine in urgent acute care visits. So every once in a while, I make a very serious diagnosis for somebody. For the most part, I don't. And so I'm seeing patients in a situation where the illnesses are not so acute or severe that I'm losing my patients anymore. Um, but I was previously in primary care and did. I think, I guess one way I'll say it is, um, you know, one thing that I do is I write condolence cards. And I learned to do that in residency from an attending who had our team do it. And I found it therapeutic for myself, too. And then now, having been um, somebody who lost my spouse and heard from the oncologist and the nurse practitioner and a number of clinicians, it was so powerfully meaningful. And there are a number of examples in the medical literature of little pieces in medical journals that teach you how to write a condolence letter. It's actually, you can like put condolence letter into PubMed and find a guide, um, which is useful. You know, we don't all know how to do that instinctually either. And then I also, um, I find literature really helpful in this context. And I think my personal experience um, in bereavement and my life as a physician reflect into each other. So things I learned as a caregiver and widow helped me as a physician and vice versa. So um, it's interesting because I think it's really hard for us to process things like the loss of a patient. But as we do, I think it helps us in our careers and also in our own lives, um, too, to be prepared for trauma and loss in our own personal lives, too. And I guess I find literature really helpful. I find poetry really helpful. And then I think, you know, this is in the burnout research, too, but um, it's helped me a lot to open up to colleagues about it. I'm in a huge, uh, I don't even know if I'd call it a support group, but um, physician mom group on Facebook. It has like, you know, something like 100,000 members and they're all physician mothers and who are very frank with each other about everything from the suit they're going to wear to a job interview to childcare to the loss of a patient. And so it's been really helpful to be in informal and formal physician groups where we can share this kind of thing. And um, and then I think also just for me, I have found that mindfulness meditation is so helpful. Exercising regularly is so helpful. Remembering to sleep enough is so helpful. And so it's not rocket science, but those things really do matter and matter to me. So that's another thing, too. For anyone who hasn't read Paul's memoir, who's listening to this, could you tell us a little bit about his experience, who he was and what the book is about? Sure. Um, so this is my late husband, Paul Kalanithi, who was a neurosurgeon at Stanford. We met in medical school. And he actually had surprised himself by going into medicine. He never thought he would become a doctor and instead was studying to be an English literature professor and then also got a master's degree in history and philosophy of science and medicine. But along the way, he became very interested in moral questions in bioethics and in questions of meaning and mortality and identity. Um, and ultimately decided, you know, if I really want to think about mortality and ethics, um, maybe I should think about being a physician and sort of tended toward um, 
like an immersive, practical view on what it means to be a human being. And so instead of becoming an academic philosopher, English professor, he decided to go to medical school. And then he became totally intoxicated by the idea of the brain as a physical organ, um, you know, matter and substance, but also the seat of identity. Um, and first thought he would be a psychiatrist. When we got engaged, he was going to be a psychiatrist. And then right around the time of our wedding, he decided he was instead going to be a neurosurgeon um, because he was one of those people who just fell in love with the operating room. So um, we got married and moved to California together and trained as physicians. And then toward the end of his residency uh, in neurosurgery at Stanford, he started to develop a set of ominous symptoms and ultimately over the course of a few months, was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, which obviously is not curable. And he lived for almost two years after the diagnosis, um, during which time he ended up writing and writing the manuscript for this memoir. And um, we had a baby during that time. And he died in uh, early 2015. Wow. And then when was the book published? subsequent to that. So Paul died in March 2015, and the book came out in January 2016. And a couple months before he died, he had sold the manuscript to Random House. So he knew that he had a publisher, but hadn't totally finished the manuscript and or chosen the cover or known exactly when it was going to come out or things like that. And then um, when he died, he knew that it would be carried forward and published. Um, but the months, the immediate months after he died, um, I worked with the publisher to, you know, approve the copy edits and supplement some of it with additional writing that Paul had done in other settings and choose the cover and all that kind of thing. And then ended up doing a book tour at the time it came out, which was shockingly really meaningful and helpful during grief. So crazy because, you know, when someone dies, it I found it so disorienting. It was like we were so, so close, of course. And then when someone dies, they just disappear. It's like you have your same world. And even if you knew that they were going to die, it's so shocking when they disappear. And I had such an impulse and desire to to be like linked with Paul and allied with Paul. It's like that had been my whole impulse during his illness, of course, too, and our marriage. And so when I had the opportunity to keep working furiously on the project that he had been working furiously on, it was so nice. And then when I ended up doing his book tour nine months after he died, you know, that's right around the time where people, you know, are not asking you about your person who died as much. And suddenly it's like this influx of like reporters and strangers and other people who just kept saying Paul's name and kept asking about Paul. And it turned out to be just a, like having cool water on me in a way that felt so comforting, refreshing, and just really like a special, special thing during that time. Well, and it makes me think of the fact, too, that, I mean, you wrote this breathtaking epilogue to the book as well. And it's interesting because I heard you speak in Charlotte at the ACPH, and you talk about this book as Paul's book. And of course, it is Paul's book. But what I was really struck by and what I continue to be struck by talking to you here is that this is your book, too. The way in which the story has evolved dynamically, the ways in which this is your book are so 
um, powerful, I think, certainly to me as a reader and to so many of us probably listening to you speak about it, whether it's at a conference or whether it's here in this podcast, too. Thanks for saying that. I mean, to me, it's like so clearly Paul's book. It's like I it's a huge part of my life. And then I the whole thing is tied up in our actual lives. And you're right. I I worked on the book a lot and wrote the very close of it. But at the same time, it's like if it's nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, like that's Paul, you know. Um, at the same time, you know, I think my own career as a physician who's interested in healthcare value, like my voice is part of it, including in ways that I've shaped and like decided to take on. I didn't think I would become a public speaker. And instead, that's been so, um, you know, a part of my own contribution to medicine in a way that I didn't expect. But it has been so crazy. It's Things pop up all the time where I'll learn that Paul's book has, you know, been read in a particular setting or someone will tweet me from, you know, Sri Lanka and say something or it is out in the world in a way that reflects back into my life all the time. And most excitingly, I'll just give you an example. This was a couple of weeks ago, but um, the publisher in England, which is a division of Penguin Random House UK, is putting out something like 12 little paperbacks next year to celebrate one of their publishing house's big anniversaries. And it's a whole list of some of their most beloved books, like Handmaid's Tale or Catch-22, Slaughterhouse-Five. And Paul's is in the little group. Um, so it's like one of the 12 or something. It's the only one from this century. <laughs> and they made, wow. it's insane. And they made like these gorgeous bespoke art covers that are so lovely. And it just is so wild. And I think they used to have this recurring daydream of like, how do I get this information to Paul? Like, oh, is there some yeah. special, it kept feeling like a riddle that I needed to solve. Like, what's the way to have made it so Paul could know this? But, I, you know, I've had like had to come to terms with that, too, because um, I just wish he could know some of that. Yeah. And yet I just kind of find myself thinking about what you said a few minutes ago, too, how, you know, there's a, a catalyst quality to the way in which your support of this story and the way that you've continued to sort of dream it onward is also such a big part of it, too. One thing I find myself thinking about, too, it's something that's in one of um, Adam Kay's book about, you know, this idea that we meet people at a particular stage in their lives, and often it's a really difficult traumatic stage. And I think he talks about it like as if it's a mixed up DVD set, you know, and you're just like playing one DVD out of the worst day of a person's life. And I guess just picking up on that idea, what do you like people to know about your life now, a few years later? What What is helpful, do you think, for people to know about what your life is like now? My life is really different. I'm So we had an eight-month-old when Paul died, and now I have a five-year-old. And we moved house, so I live in a different place. And I feel like I'm in a different moment in life. You know, I think I've sort of come to realize, at least for my life and maybe for everybody, I think of life as sort of like a set of moments. I think I used to think of it as like a path that was set out and I knew where it was leading and I was going to keep walking on it. And path is basically uphill, rising to some kind of like peak ultimately. And now I sort of think like, you know, I had no idea that my marriage was going to be eight years. Like I thought it was going to be 50 years. And instead I was married for eight years to Paul and then Paul died. And now I'm the mother to this child. And our family right now is this little dyad of me and Katie. Um, 
Although I fell in love after Paul died and was in a relationship for about a year, I hope I'm in a relationship again. My career has blossomed in ways I wouldn't have expected. And I think the thing that has happened to me over and over is sort of like these unexpected events or turns in my life that lead to a different moment. And having a small child who's growing up, I think, it becomes abundantly clear that change is constant and happening all the time. And I I miss that tiny baby who used to live in my house who doesn't. And I miss the three-year-old. And sometime soon, I'll miss the five-year-old. And I don't know. I think in answering your question, I think that's like a thing that has sort of occurred to me and felt true to me. So I'm sort of like, well, what are the other mo? Like, what's the what's the next big thing that I can't anticipate happening? You know. And I think one of the things I'm learning from my child, who, like I said, is now five, she's very curious about Paul, and she knows all about Paul. And you know, she even knows what his voice sounds like because she's heard lots of videos. And one time she like heard, I don't know how it popped up. Maybe something on YouTube popped up on my computer or something. And she heard his voice and said, "Oh, that's Daddy." And I like couldn't believe that. You know, she can recognize this voice and she knows all these neat things about him that we talk about all the time. But I am really acutely, deeply missing him. And she's not really missing him. She just kind of knows about him and he's just sort of like in the ether. And I think it's very interesting to watch her just totally naturally as children do. She sort of just accepts her circumstances, um, which I think children are pretty able to do short of like very, very significant trauma. Like, as long as they have somebody who's looking out for them and loves them, they're very flexible about what's possible and what's okay. And so I think a lot about how our family is this little two-person family, very different from what I grew up with or expected. But she thinks it's great. (laughs) And um, so I learned so much from her about, you know, acceptance and life. And it's been interesting to raise her into a different world for me. And I think she also sort of reflects generally on even existential big questions in a way that's very instructive and interesting to me. Like recently she found a little party favor from our wedding. I think I had told you this when we talked or said it at that conference. And and I said, that's a party favor, you know, from my, my wedding with daddy. And she said, was I at the wedding with daddy? And I said, no, no, you weren't there. You weren't even born yet. And she said, oh, I was in your tummy. And I said, no, no, you weren't even in my tummy yet. You weren't even anywhere yet. And she said, oh, that's because that's when I was dead. And I was like, oh, oh. my gosh, that's so interesting. <laughs> like, you're sort of kind of right, you know. And so, I don't know. I think since Paul died and maybe during Paul's illness, I think I ultimately realized how many things there are that I can't control. And so, you know making meaning out of them or finding meaning in them or learning how to tolerate them or accept them is part of like our big mission in life, you know, as, as people. And I think about that now in other things like political turmoil or climate change or all these things that Paul will never see, um, but are part of the new like personal and collective challenges coming our way. And, and it's those same kind of skills, right? It's, It's the same skills we were talking about before, about dealing with the death of a patient or dealing with something else unexpected or um, painful in the world. Maybe that's the answer to the question is, I've like learned to think a little bit more about how to be in the world and how to accept the world. I was at a workshop 
a few years ago where a colleague was talking about a, a really traumatic experience that he'd had. And he'd actually written a poem about it, which he shared. But his his point was really that in the writing of the poem and the reframing of the experience, what he'd learned to do was to work differently with the experience. And that phrasing always really struck me that this is one of our most challenging jobs, I think, in, in life if we want to find any kind of peace is to take those experiences and sometimes figure out different ways of working with them. Sometimes this is one of the ways in which physicians, our shoulders go up and people's the hair on their back raises when people say, you know, well, mindfulness can help. And it, things that are prescriptive and cookie cutter along those lines don't help at all, but we're really talking about a much deeper set of cognitive skills, aren't we, you know, that really get to the core of how we, who we are and how we experience not just the stressful moments of the day, but really how we respond to the bulk of our lives. Yeah, totally. And I think that's right. It's like, it's a question about meaning. And I think it's true. It's like, we are working on our own resilience in our lives. And I think that thing about mindfulness, like getting your hackles up when you're thinking about mindfulness, that's like, if someone's telling you that you're not resilient enough. And I think the instinct there, you know, especially as it relates to health systems and, and burnout is there's studies showing that physicians, when they enter medical school as students, have higher resilience and better quality of life than their age-matched peers, which is so useful to remember. You know, I think and this is why that the report from the National Academy of Medicine here called Taking Action on Clinician Burnout they ultimately say, like, in the distillation of the report, this lovely sentence that says something like, the job demands of a clinician are mismatched with the resources available to do the job, and it creates this real dissonance. And it's wild to see, you know, 10 years ago, I think this report would not quite have been possible. That was right when, you know, the resilience, personal mindfulness, like wellness lunch wave was starting. And now to have the National Academy of Medicine in the U.S. say, this is a major health system structural issue, and here are the evidence-based solutions. It's come so far. And so it's, it's, I don't even think that narrative will work anymore. And I think there's, that's just very exciting to see, speaking of cultural change. And it kind of comes back to, I think, what you said about end-of-life care and the way we make the case for the highest order of communication skills and approaches to these kinds of situations. It's acquire the evidence, be systematic, you know, find it, build it, get it of the highest quality. And then, as you say, it's really hard to argue with with what's in front of you. It's It sort of goes against our scientific nature as well. But as we know, like, then the next 20 years are about implementing it and implementation science and cultural change. And it's like, that's the moment. That's where we are now. That's what this podcast is about. <laughs> that's the work I think is really important. Yeah. So, Lucy, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today, for sharing your experiences and for sharing your and Paul's beautiful work. It has touched so many of us. So thank you so much. It's so nice to talk with you. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, internist and clinical assistant professor of medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Kalanithi and I first started this conversation at the American Conference on Physician Health in Charlotte, North Carolina, earlier this fall. She's the widow of Dr. Paul Kalanithi, author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, When Breath Becomes Air. She lives in California with her five-year-old daughter. 
And if you'd like to hear more podcasts in this series, MedLife with Dr. Horton, you can find them as part of CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating. This podcast was made possible in part by the support of the Alan Kloss Health Humanities Program at the University of Manitoba. I'm Dr. Gillian Horton. Thank you for listening.